Hey guys, welcome to week four. It is, uh, the term is getting on. It's getting long in the tooth, and before you know it, it's gonna be over. It's going very quickly in my mind. It is uh, day 38 on the self-quarantine count, firmly in the second month. Hope everybody's doing all right. Uh, today and the topic for this week is finding the voice of the campaign. Uh, now that we have guest lecturers uh, each week for most of the rest of the course, uh, until presentations come, come around, uh, there's going to be a weekly lecture and then a weekly guest lecture. So uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the issue of messaging. And I'm doing this in two stages. Today, we're talking about finding the voice of the campaign. And next week, we'll be looking at uh, polls, focus groups, and uh, strategy to come up with a messaging strategy. So there, it's, there's really two separate stages involved with uh, doing this. I'm going to check the record to make sure it's going. It is, just have to deal with the slight stab of anxiety that I'm gonna spend the next hour of my life talking to an iPhone that's not recording me. Here it is. Um, the two stages really are uh, discovery and then execution. And today we're gonna to look at discovery. So really finding the voice of the campaign, this is mostly about discovery. And as part of discovery is exploration. Uh, the topic next time will be much more nuts and bolts, okay? We've explored, we've discovered, there's, there's a sense of what the voice of the campaign is going to be. Now we have to figure out how to actually take that from inside the campaign, which is where discovery and exploration goes, and take it outside the campaign to, uh, to messaging to uh, the recipients of the messages. And the thing is, is that keep, we have to keep in mind as we're discovering, as well as then doing the strategizing, polls, focus groups, messaging, actually writing materials, coming up with ads, writing speeches, Facebook posts, that kind of thing, all of that is, the, is what we're going to look at next week, is that the campaign is speaking to the world, but it is, it is not speaking to a uniform, homogenous world. It's speaking to a couple of different aspects of the world. Uh, of course, a campaign is always and primarily speaking to voters. And uh, you can never lose sight of the fact that that is the main target audience of all campaign communications. Uh, that's who uh, ultimately is going to be the, you know, the decider, <laughs> getting the most votes. That's the goal of the campaign. Uh, of course, voters come in different groups and there are different uh, ears and different perspectives. So, and that's part of what polling and focus grouping is going to uh, do is, is help us to take the voters as this undifferentiated mass of people, each with one vote, uh, and each vote counting as towards uh, getting the most votes, uh, and knowing that, the, that there's a competitor trying to get those votes for some other side, and segment them and break them down and figure out how to most effectively communicate to voters. There are also supporters, and the campaign is always speaking to supporters, people who are already either on your side because they're voting for you, or uh, because uh, from their, the perspective of their interest group, or their advocacy group, or their corporation, or whoever it happens to be, uh, that they want you or they want your uh, ballot measure to, uh, to cross the finish line. We're also speaking to supporters because uh, supporters have resources. Votes are the measurement of success or failure in a campaign, but success and failure depends on resources. And supporters have resources for us in a couple of forms activist energy, and financial resources. 
Um, and both of those things provide the potential for making connections that can build activist energy and financial resources even further. So there's, uh, as I talked about last time, there's kind of this network effect, and there's, uh, I feel like we've already kind of covered that and the guest lectures last week, and if, you know, we'll see the guest lectures in the future will all be adding on their perspectives on what it takes to marshal these resources. But an important part of a campaign's voice and messaging strategy has to be aimed at supporters because those resources, particularly activist energy at a lower level race, particularly financial supporters at a higher level race where we're looking at 800,000 uh, people in a constituency versus uh, 10, 20, 30,000 people in a constituency. But no matter what, you're always speaking to your supporters. So part of the ex exploration, part of the discovery of the voice is what will get people to vote for us, but also what will get people to support us and it is activist energy even more than uh, votes that is kind of a, an early part of this uh, discovery process. All right, had a slight interruption there. Uh, I'm back and the interruption was just the pounding feet and then the disturbance of the teenage son who I actually forgot to inform that I was rolling uh, with the video lecture. So that was, uh, that was on me. Uh, okay, so, uh, I was probably already just spending too much time on the prologue for this anyway. Uh, the process of discovery, which is uh, essential to finding the voice of the campaign as a way of stepping into then what's our messaging strategy going to be, uh, it depends on what kind of campaign you're running. Um, the voice is going to depend on context. And so the context is given by what kind of race you're running. So we have either a candidate race or we have a ballot measure race. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to break down the various versions of each of these uh, and talk about kind of what it is that uh, goes into determining the voice uh, of uh, each of these. Now, before breaking down the different candidate races, one of the things about a uh, candidate race versus a ballot measure race is that a candidate is given to you. Uh, and I'm, I'm gonna do this from the, I'm gonna do today, I'm gonna do this from the perspective of campaign staff, the campaign manager, and the top level staff strategists, not from the point of view of the candidate. Um, there, I will note a few things about uh, you know, cultivating the candidate, but the candidate is given to you in the sense that this is a process of discovering what it is that the candidate that you have can be brought out in an election and in a public campaign and what it is that we want to bring out from that candidate. Uh, now, you, you, there are certain things you can't, if you have a candidate who's never held public office before, part of your process of discovery can't be, well, what of your political experience are we going to highlight and what of your political experience is not necessarily relevant to this particular race. Uh, so there are just certain kinds of givens. There, but there are also in the sort of uh, movement, and this is an early process, like I, I'm, I'm hoping, or I'm, I'm premising this on the idea that we actually have a decent amount of time, that it's not June and there's a November election, or it's not February and we're facing a May primary, that uh, we're kind of further back in the process of starting this early enough that this pre-messaging, pre-strategic stage can be, can be carried out. Now, you won't always have the luxury of doing this in a campaign. You might get in late, they might get in late, uh, one of our guest lecturers, uh, for a couple weeks from now, Tom Hughes 
uh, he, he, all of his uh, important races, he was the mayor of Hillsborough and he was the president of the Metro Council, he kind of got in late in the process and so didn't really have the luxury of doing this, had to hit the ground running uh, pretty much immediately with, with strategy. But the candidate is like, we're discovering essentially a given product. A ballot measure, because if you're on the yes side of a ballot measure, uh, you, essentially you have the ability to, to, to form it and frame it. So already we have a difference between these two kinds of campaigns. Now, let me just run down what the different versions of this. A candidate could be an incumbent. Almost couldn't remember how to spell incumbent there. Uh, and uh, a lot of campaigns for incumbents are going to be really simple because uh, there's a huge advantage to the incumbency. There's name recognition, there's uh, constituent service, there's uh, just sort of inertia. There's the fact that uh, a solid incumbent can scare away decent challengers. Uh, but I'm gonna, going to assume, because those, all those races are really not very interesting or complicated ones, you still have to run a campaign. But let's, let's assume an incumbent that is facing a significant, serious, and genuine challenge. Uh, because that, that will be the hardest version of an incumbent campaign. There's also then, of course, the challenger campaign. And challengers are going to enter the race, and hopefully you're going to be working for, uh, or if you're a candidate yourself, you're going, to be a, you're going to be a challenger that has a realistic shot. If we're talking about a long shot challenger, if we're talking about somebody who's in, in the race to gain exposure or to gain experience in running a race, like, and that's, that's a legitimate thing, right? Um, some people uh, know about politics that you're going to lose and that uh, you can learn a ton when you lose. Um, that, and they'll get in and be like, okay, this is, a, this, is, this is an almost impossible challenge, but there's an, open, there's an opening here. I'm gonna run, challenge this incumbent, probably not gonna win. If I do win, great. If I don't, I'll have learned a ton of stuff. Uh, but we're gonna, again, focus on a challenger that is, there's, the incumbent is either weak or the times are such that this challenge is realistically, uh, uh, has a realistic shot. Okay, I have to stop one more time. It, it's, it, it must be having weird anxieties today about recording. All right, they're recording. I think that probably I've had a higher coffee to food ratio at this point. Uh, it, is, it is Sunday morning, it's not my typical time to be lecturing. But we're recording and uh, here we go. So, now here we go, here we're continuing to go. The third version of an incumbent race is an open seat. Or excuse me, not an incumbent race, a candidate race is an open seat. There is no incumbent. The incumbent has uh, retired, resigned, left office because of scandal, died, whatever, whatever it is that leaves an open seat, um, the, this, this means that what we have is we have two challengers, uh, or essentially, you know, they're, both of them are starting with the idea that neither one of them has a particular advantage. Um, now, there are a couple of other dimensions to note about uh, a, um, a candidate race, and that is that we have primaries versus general, And we have partisan versus nonpartisan in both of these versions. The kind of paradigmatic political campaign, the one that has the most high profile, is a partisan general election campaign, right? It's November, and we have a Democrat running against a Republican. That is, of course, a very common type of election in the United States. But it is far from the only kind, and there are tons and tons of races, and especially early in your career, if you actually do go into campaign, 
early in your career you're going to probably be working at lower levels where it may be one that the the, the main election is the primary election uh, and two that you're working in a nonpartisan type of election and I'll, I'll, I'll just give you some examples from right here in Portland um, our city council elections and our mayoral election are all nonpartisan. In other words, you don't run in the primary to get the Democratic or Republican nomination and run in the general election to as a Democrat versus a Republican. Um, part of that is because that's how our Constitution, our state constitution is written, and, and it makes sense because in, in, in many states, Oregon is, is a relatively typical state in this way, uh, if a Democrat is running against a Republican in the November election for mayor of Portland, the Democrat's going to probably win almost every single time just because, uh, you know, the, of the, the generally liberal bent of the electorate. So to have a really competitive general election, it really, it's, it, nonpartisan makes sense. And part of it, too, is that at, judicial races are nonpartisan in almost all of, all of the place. Um, is that the nature of the office carries with it like okay we don't need a, we don't need party uh, identifications or party identifications are actually problematic uh, so the way it works for a lot of elections in Oregon is that um, there's a primary election that's nonpartisan everybody who wants that office runs and the top two finishers go to a nonpartisan general election unless one of the people running in the primary gets 50 percent plus one votes. So there's a, there's a way, there's a mechanism, and it's, it, it, it happens sort of frequently that the primary is the election. Uh, and one of the things about running a, a candidate campaign, and this is actually d not directly the issue of uh, voice, but just of overall campaign resources, is that um, if you're running in a nonpartisan primary uh, election, and there are only two and possibly even three candidates, you're aiming to win at the primary level. You're not even looking beyond to uh, the general election. Um, our current mayor, Ted Wheeler, he was elected four years ago in the primary. Uh, and that's not typical for Portland mayor. Usually if there's enough people running for Portland mayor that nobody gets 50% plus one. Um, and then the top two vote getters uh, go on to the November election. It, it didn't happen. Ted Wheeler was the secretary, or excuse me, the state treasurer he had pretty good name recognition. He hit the ground running. He actually aimed, even though there was a relatively large field, actually aimed to win in the primary uh, and did so. And uh, he is, in fact, running for re-election. And even though there were more than two people running, uh, he's aiming to win in the primary once again. Um, so that's one thing that could happen in that type of scenario. But let's just assume that we have a two-tiered uh, setup. If you're running in a nonpartisan election, what that means is that first you have a primary and then you have a general election and they're similar because the same people are voting roughly in both of those levels. And it may be that the general election has a higher level of turnout than the primary, um, but the people who are actually going to vote down ballot, far enough down ballot in the general election, are probably going to be the kind of uh, high intensity engaged voters who are going to vote in the primary. So it's not going to be identical electorates, but it's going to be a very similar electorate. So when you're thinking about the voice of the campaign, you're looking out ahead at a pathway that potentially ends, at least in Oregon, in May. But if it doesn't end in May and goes all the way to November, your pathway is going to be a similar one. You don't have to pivot. If you have a partisan system, and let's say it's an open seat, and it's an open seat in a swing district where the Democrat or the Republican has a legitimate chance, then 
in the primary, you're going to be running against other members of your own party. And then in the general election, you're going to be running against somebody from the other party. That's a, those are two very different groups. And in a state like Oregon, uh, where we actually have closed primaries, where you have to be a registered Democrat to vote in the Democratic primary or a registered Republican to vote in the Republican primary, you are actually absolutely going to have a different electorate in the primary and in the general. And so the voice is going to be uh, is going is to have to change. There's going to be a pivot. We're very familiar with this pivot with presidential politics because presidential politics is a partisan uh, you know, primary and then a uh, partisan uh, general election and the electorate in the general election is very different from the electorate in the primaries. So we're very familiar with this distinction. Uh, if we're talking about partisan elections in a swing district uh, with you know, either an open seat or a realistic challenger incumbent kind of uh, face-off, then the, that's a very different type of landscape. Uh, another type, different type of landscape is a safe seat with a partisan primary. Uh, and you're not going to have a safe seat with a nonpartisan primary. There's no such thing as a safe seat unless it's a partisan race. Like, so what safe means is that the, in the fall, in the general election, the Democrat or the Republican is going to be the winner almost certainly, except under uh, extraordinary circumstances. But if we have a safe seat in a partisan election, the primary is the election. And what that means is that, while well, eventually you're going to have to go and speak to the broader electorate, uh, the, the uh, primary is where you have to focus it. So there's not, a, there, there's a, technically there's a pivot because you have to go through both of those stages. You have to win the primary and then the general doesn't just get canceled, you have to win the general. But you're going to win the general if you're a Democrat in a safe Democratic seat or a Republican in a safe Republican seat. So the primary is your election. And what that means is that the only people you have to think about are your party's base. Uh, and in a closed primary state like Oregon, you really only have to think about registered Democrats. You don't even have to think about independents. Some other uh, states have uh, um, semi-open primaries where independents can, can uh, vote. St different states have different rules. Um, and just because we actually have a closed primary doesn't mean there's not some outreach possible because what independent voters can do is they can register as Democrats to run to, to vote in that, in that particular race. Republicans can switch their uh, uh, voter registration from Republican to Democrat. And you can do that in Oregon, I believe you can do that up to the day of the election. I'm not 100% sure if that's the case. There might be a two week waiting period. Again, all the states have different rules. I should probably just at least know all the Oregon rules. I don't. One of the important things though is that somebody on your campaign, probably you if you're, the, if you're st studying this, in this class to be a campaign manager or a high level campaign operative, that's part of your job. Either you need to know that, or somebody who reports to you needs to know, okay, we have until two weeks before the campaign to get people switched. And, and the reason why that's important is because if part of what you're looking at is if you're, if you're saying, well, you know what, uh, I'm running for a safe democratic seat in uh, a, a district where my views as a Democrat are more moderate than either my challenger for an open seat or the, excuse me, the, the opponents in the open seat or than the incumbent that I'm seeking to challenge. Um, and so what I need to do, my task, is to not just win the, I mean, I, I, of course my task is to win the uh, Democratic voters, but I need to enlarge the base of primary voters into that moderate, independent group of people. My, my politics, the, whatever voice I discover, I know going in 
that my politics are not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to out-Democrat the other Democrat. I can't go to, the, to their left to really activate their base. I need to reach people, and this is, this is actually a really interesting uh, problem, and it will affect this discovery process. You're going to be seeking a voice for the campaign, and then later on, when you, when you, try, when you translate that voice into specific messaging, that is going to speak to people who you are asking to do two things instead of just one. You're asking them to change their registration to Democratic, either from Independent or from Republican, probably just from Independent, and then you're asking for them to vote for you. Now, if they're going to switch to get uh, into the, to be able to vote in the primary, hopefully you won their vote, right? Uh, but what, you're, what you are actually doing then is you're, you're asking for a more difficult thing. You're asking for a bigger thing than you normally are when you ask people for their vote. It's like, you're registered, it's a general election, you get to vote, vote for me. That's all, already, there's a, you know, there, there's a task there. But if you're actually saying, okay, the, in order to be able to help me win, you have to change your registration and then vote for me. Uh, that is a bigger task. So one of the things, uh, I, maybe I've gone through all the permutations, I, I probably don't need to go through all of the various permutations, but is that the structure of your election, uh, and this is the actual sort of institutional structure, and then this is the, the, this is the kind of uh, contingent structure in terms of who the people are who, are who are running for that particular seat, has an impact. You, have, you, you need to pay attention to the fact that uh, this is what the situation is. If you're a challenger, and there's uh, a relatively well-known incumbent, and maybe part of their being well-known is problematic for them right now because uh, the times are such that they're well-known for taking stands on issues that are now unpopular, and that's actually what makes for a realistic challenge is that the incumbent advantage is uh, sort of either uh, filed off or flipped, and it becomes, a, it becomes an incumbent disadvantage. And this is what happens in wave election periods where it's like, you know, if, if the Republican Party is broadly unpopular, like it was in 2018, or the Democratic Party is broadly unpopular like it was in 2010, or in both of those cases, not necessarily broadly unpopular, so much as there's a high level of dissatisfaction among uh, the, a, a chunk of people in each of those parties, then that, that's a factor that's creating a wave election. And challengers are going to come along who would never have thought of challenging an incumbent. A, a relatively stable incumbent can become vulnerable during those particular periods. It's important as you go through this discovery process to know what the structure is because a campaign is not just a generic activity of taking a candidate and reaching voters uh, with it. A huge part of uh, what you need to do, and this is the second stage when we start looking at polling and focus groups aimed towards specific messages, you also have to know that you're running in a specific time with a specific group of people and you need to know one, what that time is, and what the nature of it is, and that, of course, that strategists, that's part of what they think about. Uh, they're not just like, okay, here's how you run a campaign, right? Well, no, it's 2020. It's not 2018 anymore. 2020 is a very different cycle than 2018. Um, so th that's part of what they think about. But then also, who are the people in your specific district uh, who are likely to vote? Who are they? What are they like? What, what concerns them? in this particular moment. So you need to be aware of all that. And uh, at this discovery process, having uh, that specific level of awareness isn't really necessary. That, that level of detail will take the voice and shape it into a message via uh, really a, a, what is, the, it's a mixture of art and science. And I don't wanna get too far ahead of, of myself and, and start talking about next week's topic. But uh, the voice, you need to know 
well, what, you know, what am I even training my voice for? What's the structure of it? So paying attention to the nature of the race. If we're looking at this from a political science perspective, not from a campaign practitioner perspective, it really, the, these factors also really matter. Like what contributes to success uh, in a campaign? What gets, some, what gets somebody elected? The factors of what, what is the actual institutional structure of the election, and then what is the contingent uh, structure? What are the people like? What's, what's happening? When a political scientist looks at open seat elections, they look at it uh, with a different, uh, they collect that as a different data set than looking at uh, incumbent elections, uh, because it doesn't tell you a whole lot just to evaluate all elections in general. Uh, if, you're, if you're lumping in super safe seats with open seat, uh, uh, swing seat elections when you do your analysis, you're missing a big part of the picture. So from a scientific point of view, uh, a political scientific point of view, uh, I don't want to over-science uh, my field because there's a lot of art to it as well, but from an, an analytical point of view, it makes sense to break these things down. From a practitioner's point of view, it absolutely does. You have to know what it is that you're trying to discover. Um, now, when depending on what you know here, or what your, what, what your structure is, uh, that's going to start you, it's going to point your discovery process in a particular kind of direction. Um, the incumbent has a number of things that are there already. The incumbent has a record uh, on the issues, they have uh, also a record of service, um, and then they have name recognition. And not only do they have name recognition in the sense that people, more people will know their name. Still a ton of people won't know their name, right? Think about, do you know the names of all the people who represent you? Uh, and depending on where you're sitting uh, right now uh, and where you live, you may have, you know, eight people representing you. You may have 15 people representing you, right? There's a president, there's a member of Congress, there's two senators, there's a governor, there's a secretary. There's, there are so many people. How many of those names do you, do you actually know? Um, not a ton, even though as people who study political science, you probably have an above average uh, level of awareness. But name recognition doesn't mean that the public or even all of your voters necessarily know you. It's that there are people who are important, and this is particularly true when you're speaking to supporters, even more so than voters, who know who you are. And they recognize your name, but more than recognizing the actual name, like, oh, okay, you know, uh, um, uh, Earl Blumenauer is my member of Congress. I recognize that name is what is your reputation with that name? And name recognition plus reputation, I, actually I'm gonna, I'm gonna change this, plus, plus reputation equals brand. And you know, this is a term I will confess, the term brand is a term that's obviously been around for a really long time in marketing, and political uh, campaigning has, is, has, all, has been about marketing for a really long time. Um, but the term brand is actually now even just uh, specifically entered the political dialogue and not in a bad way of, oh, we're just, we're, we're, we're just marketing candidates like we're marketing any other kind of product, like we're, like we're marketing laundry soap. Right? That was one of the early critiques in the 60s uh, of the marketing turn of uh, campaigns was that, oh, we're just, we're, pr we're promoting candidates like we promote laundry soap. Uh, that's why it's such an ancient sounding uh, reference. The idea that candidates had a brand was kind of anathema and problematic. Now I think there's just a recognition that uh, that's true, is that your brand, what you represent, what, what your name says about you. Now, part of your reputation, and of course part of your brand, and this matters in a partisan race, is what your party is, right? Um, 
and there's a your your party identification and your whole brand is way more complicated than just a specific name, right? What a brand is, is a brand is a cluster of ideas and feelings about whatever the brand is, right? So the brand is a cluster of ideas and feelings. Right? Let's just leave politics for a second to talk about brand and, and, and to show what sort of what brand uh, is in its multifaceted uh, existence. Um, McDonald's. McDonald's is obviously very familiar, has maybe the highest name recognition of any brand in the world except for possibly Coca-Cola, right? McDonald's, Coca-Cola, these are brands that people have the name of. We know that McDonald's is a fast food restaurant, we know that Coca-Cola is, uh, is a soft drink. Um, that's the most baseline thing about what a brand is. We also know that McDonald's is one of the most popular, if not the most popular, fast food uh, uh, company, and Coca-Cola is the most popular soft drink company. But what those brands say to us is they say, how do you feel? What do you think about when you think about each of those things? Um, and what feelings accompany those thoughts? Uh, one of the things about McDonald's as a brand, actually, is that uh, for, uh, I think this has changed significantly over the last decade, but for people of my generation, McDonald's as a brand conveys uh, not just fast, cheap food that's available for a busy lifestyle. I think that's what McDonald's conveys as a, as a brand, as an idea today. McDonald's conveyed a special occasion and it conveyed a kind of a treat. Um, and it was one of those things where if you got to go to McDonald's, what did you feel? Oh, you felt good, it was relaxed. It was good times for the family. You were on a road trip or, or your parents were too busy to make dinner, but you didn't care because that meant they were too busy to make green beans or lima beans and then you got to eat french fries and, and hamburgers. From, from my generation, many people associated that brand with a set of ideas and feelings. There was a story and a scenario attached to that brand. And that was partly because that's the place that McDonald's had in the culture, but that was cultivated by the McDonald's marketing machine, and our culture was amenable to that message. That's why McDonald's became so uh, so big, is because the way they marketed uh, their, their brand and their product was, uh, uh, the culture was able to embrace that. But that's what a brand does. A brand carries with it a cluster of ideas and feelings, and in a lot of cases, what, a what that cluster of ideas and feelings is, is it's a story. And marketing is very much oriented towards telling you a story. Um, you don't necessarily see marketing materials as a story, right? Like a 30 second television commercial isn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily have the classic beginning, middle, end story arc. Uh, though some of them do. Um, but what commercials are intended to do and what all marketing materials are intended to do is to get you inside a story and pu putting yourself in an important place so that you can have the feeling, the positive feeling towards that particular product. Uh, a, a candidate as a brand also has that same nature, right? Uh, and as a person, right? We all, it, it, this maybe is even too, too mercenary uh, for many people to accept, but like we all have a brand and mostly it's because we, we have a reputation um, and that reputation is also set together with all kinds of other associations and experiences that create that brand. Um, I, I have a brand, right? Uh, for those of you who took this class, 
either because you know me or you took this class knowing something about me, you, you heard something about me, uh, I have a particular brand that associates, uh, that you associate my name with a particular kind of professor, with a particular kind of classroom experience. Um, and while I don't necessarily market myself in the same way that a candidate or that a company like McDonald's or Coca-Cola markets themselves, uh, there is a sense in which I am marketing myself by being the way I am and by uh, embracing this reputation and by, by, by working into it and accepting it, that further perpetuates it. And so when you're like, oh, Dr. Miller's teaching, teaching this class in campaigns, you don't necessarily know it, but you're all, you're putting yourself inside a story and a story is you in that class having that particular kind of experience. Um, candidates, particularly incumbents, they have a brand that they ha is in a way it's given to them and finding the voice of your campaign is about accepting what your brand is and moving your brand in the direction where voters will be happy to vote for you. Incumbents, they have a huge advantage because people already understand themselves inside that story. They have a huge uh, advantage because they can have provided constituent services that people are like, oh, hey, you did this thing for me or my group or whatever it was, or you voted for this thing that we favored, um, or you in general voted for stuff that my, my group favored, so we're going to endorse you. All of those things can help, uh, but the, the incumbent comes into a race with a brand. And so the process of discovering the voice of the campaign is really just articulating what it is that your brand is. Um, and your brand can, can uh, change and adapt depending on what the times are. Let's say that you have a uh, reputation as a moderate Republican, of a, a fiscally conservative, relatively tolerant, uh, business-oriented moderate Republican. Um, this is not a brand that's very common anymore, but uh, it used to be very common, and it's, it still exists. If you have that brand, if that's what you are, if, that's, if that is how you've been uh, uh, sort of you've acted in that direction. Embracing that brand is going to be, uh, or knowing that that is the brand that people are gonna to bring to you is going to determine the voice of the campaign. If you're running in an election where there's dissatisfaction with the uh, sort of rightward populist tilt of the Republican Party, your brand is an advantage to you. And so knowing what your brand is and knowing how it relates to the times is going to allow you to say, okay, my, the voice of my campaign is that I'm going to play up the fact that I'm a different kind of Republican. Um, in an election where the Democratic Party is unpopular or where the Republican Party is, is doing well and where uh, perceptions are the Republican Party has, is standing for these particular things that are not exactly uh, aligned with my brand, my brand is a liability, or at least it's a potential liability. And so finding the voice of my campaign is going to have to be about the fact that uh, I have potentially a problematic brand, and I'm not going to want, and I can assume that my challenger is going to want to essentially uh, tattoo me with that brand, uh, and that's going to be problematic. And a, and a good challenger will do that, right? If I'm a moderate Republican in uh, an election cycle where uh, uh, people uh, are see and expect the Republican Party to be the party of Trump, and they're, they're relatively, Republicans are relatively satisfied with that, my challenger is going to brand me as out of touch with the times. Um, or possibly my, my challenger is also going to look at that brand and say, oh, that brand could attract the kind of swing voters that are going to decide this election, so I'm not going to uh, uh, tattoo that uh, candidate with that brand. That's the time when you're going to probably be wanting to tattoo yourself with your brand, where you're like, oh, this, is, this, this speaks to us. But an incumbent campaign 
when, let's say that you're a eight-year incumbent and uh, you've never really faced a significant challenge because there hasn't really been a set of political circumstances and there hasn't been a viable challenger that's come along and you've more or less skated to relatively easy victories and now you're facing your first significant uh, challenge. Uh, let's say that you, you are, you're, a, you're a relatively moderate Democrat who's been getting elected for 10 years and now there's a very progressive tilt towards the population. People are wanting, people are energized by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They're, they're energized by the possibility of actually having a real progressive agenda. And so being a moderate Democrat, which was good for you all along, now the reason why you're facing a real challenge, and probably you're facing a challenge in a partisan primary, right? You're facing a challenge from the left. And of course, it always matters to know what, if you're an incumbent, what your challenger looks like, particularly in partisan elections, um, to, to finding your voice. Now, your brand is something that's problematic. So the voice of your campaign is going to center around your response to and the usefulness of your brand. And part of the discovery process, finding the voice of the campaign, is let's say, okay, I, I need to run against my brand or my brand is problematic to me, right? I'm a moderate Democrat in a safe Democratic seat and I haven't really faced a meaningful challenger from the left and now I'm facing a challenger from the left. What am I going to emphasize? Uh, at this point, you're probably then, your discovery is gonna be what do I have that can speak to people who might otherwise be dissatisfied with the ideological nature of my brand? Well, this is where you're going to look at service, probably. Uh, possibly voting record, though voting record is connected to ideology, but you're going to look at your service and be like, you're going to, your voice of your campaign is going to be, what have I done for you? Why have I been a solid public servant? Uh, why have I uh, aided groups in my district? Why have I been good for the economy? Why have I, whatever it is, service is going to help transcend ideology. Now. Later, in the next step, when we get to essentially operationalizing what the voice of the campaign is, um, you may find out, like, okay, what aspects of the emphasis? Like, it, you know, I've, do I want to emphasize the fact that I've served the economy of my district or that I've served, say, the uh, environmental interests in, in my uh, group uh, or in my, my, in my constituency? Uh, I just interviewed a couple days ago, and you'll give this in a couple weeks. It's available now if you want to listen to it now. I interviewed Tom Hughes. And um, he ran for Metro Council president in 2010, and he was kind of tagged as the jobs guy. Um, he, he, as mayor of Hillsborough, had helped to uh, bring a lot of jobs to Hillsborough. He was very good for economic development in Hillsborough. And so economic development-oriented groups and community leaders pushed him into running and also were early supporters of his. So he was, in a way... And he got in late, so he didn't really have the luxury to do this, but he, he, what was foisted upon him was the voice of the jobs guy. As he uh, tells me, and you'll hear in the interview, uh, that actually worked in 2010. 2010 was kind of the, there was a lot of economic in, in, insecurity. It was the, it was the uh, height of the Great Recession. And so being the jobs guy was a really beneficial voice for his campaign. Uh, it was thrust upon him, but it actually worked. If if he had had a longer time, like he got into the rate lace just right before the primary, uh, but if he'd had more time and was being essentially uh, tagged 
automatically as the environment guy. Because when he first ran for gov or governor, mayor of Hillsborough, he was supported by and endorsed by the League of Conservation Voters. So eight years or 10 years earlier in 2000 when he ran for uh, mayor of Hillsborough, he was essentially the environmental guy. Now, this, this is great and, and, and I hope that you, you, know, you definitely need to listen to this interview because I'm just giving you the tiniest slice of it, but uh, this is a really good example of how even when you have a candidate who's given to you, there's, there's, there's malleability and there's also changeability. Like back in 2000, he was, he was the slower growth candidate rather than the other candidate for mayor was the fast growth candidate. So that essentially made him the, you know, the, the darling of the environmental uh, group. Uh, when he was running for Metro Council President, his success at economic development in Hillsborough made him possible to be the jobs guy. But let's say that 2010 was a prosperous time, not an economically insecure time, and he had had six months before the primary to undergo a pretty good exploration. He could, he could have said, okay, well, I have... Uh, in my past, I had the League of Conservation Voters supporting me, and now I have uh, economic development leaders supporting me. These are things in my record of, or in my service, I can draw on. And does it make sense to draw on both of them? Does it make sense to draw on one or the other? Um, what, what and who am I? Um, and again, we're not, we're not going to over-determine this. This is a process of discovery, not a process of determination. You don't want to go into the, um, the polling and focus grouping and messaging strategy stage with a bunch of preconceived notions, right? Uh, that's not what the discovery process is. The discovery process is not determining what the voice of the campaign actually has to be like, and then we just turn it into words. It's about saying, well, what are the possibilities? What are we working with here? What, uh, what, do we, what could this campaign be about? That's maybe a, a, a good thing is, what could this campaign be about? Now, if you're a challenger, there's a different landscape that you're dealing with. Um, it's possible, and this does happen, it's possible that you have an incumbent-like nature, right? That what you have is you have a record and service and name recognition, and you're moving from one office to another. Uh, and I, I referenced earlier uh, Ted Wheeler, who when he ran for mayor, he was the state treasurer and he was either the incumbent or he had just left, I can't remember, but he had recently been or was the state treasurer. Um, what that meant was that he was moving from one high-profile elected office, which he had won, to another one. And so while he was not the incumbent, he was running for an open seat uh, at that particular time, he had some incumbent-like nature to him. If you're a challenger or you're running an open seat and you, you bring a pretty significant record of public service and you have... Uh, victories behind you, then you can actually act more like a check, more like an incumbent than like a challenger or somebody running for an open seat. Um, and in fact, uh, the incumbency advantage translates over in this particular way. I mean, one of the reasons why Ted Wheeler had an easy time, relatively easy time, getting to 50% plus one in the primary election, even in a, even in a big field, I think the field was actually like there were either eight or 10 uh, declared candidates. And that just has the potential to fragment the electorate that even if you're the most popular of all of those eight or 10 people, still getting to 50% plus one is gonna be, is gonna be quite challenging. Uh, but he was essentially, while he was not the mayor, 
he was he had an incumbency to him and he had a reputation as a kind of a you know fiscally responsible efficiency oriented uh, very accomplished I mean you know I won't say accountant like but there was part of that reputation was that reliable steady uh, um, focused technocrat type of person and he'd run a statewide campaign and won it, right? He was the state treasurer, and to, to become the state treasurer, you have to run in the entire state, just like the governor does. Now, it's not as high profile as the governor, but the constituency is exactly the same. So he actually had, and then he had a record, uh, and, he, and he had service, and he had connections with uh, supporters and with endorsers. All of the stuff that incumbents usually have automatically, they have endorsements, they have interest groups that are interested in keeping them in office, all, they have a financial, uh, they have a, a fundraising network already built up. All of that stuff was true for Ted Wheeler. And in fact, he was going from a statewide office to a locally elected office, which is not generally the trajectory. Uh, interestingly though, moving from state treasurer to mayor of Portland is a higher, is a move from a relatively low profile statewide office to a relatively high profile uh, office with a smaller constituency. So it really, you know, in some ways it was kind of like a lateral or slightly upward move. Um, but that's not typically the case. Uh, when it is the case, when you're the challenger for an office that is uh, bigger than the office you're running for, if you have been, for example, in the state senate and now you want to be a uh, U.S. Uh, uh, House of Rep. You want to run for a House seat, uh, and that's happening right now. Uh, Greg Walden uh, ret retired, and there's an open seat for <sighs> District 2. Uh, I really ought to know the numbers. Uh, still a little ashamed, but there's, there's an open seat in one of Oregon's five members of the House of Representatives that's been held as a safe Republican seat for a really long time. Greg Walden would have cruised to re-election. Uh, so, and now what we have in that particular race, and I think that at least one of the groups in this class is, is studying this race, uh, a candidate in this race, we have a partisan primary election. Whoever wins the Republican primary in this race is almost certain to go to the U.S. House of Representatives in, in, in November. It's possible that the Democratic challenger will have a chance, and it really does depend, and this is where actually parties will really care, um, it really depends on who the Republican is, and this is, uh, this is kind of the, uh, um, the Doug Jones phenomenon. Uh, Doug Jones is a Democratic senator from Alabama, and you don't get elected to the U.S. Senate from uh, Alabama if you're a Democrat, not in the present day, unless your Senate, Republican Senate uh, opponent is a toxic wasteland of uh, problems. And I actually, I forget the name of the guy. Uh, I blocked out the name of the Republican who lost to Doug Jones. Uh, so it's always possible that the, that, that the uh, general election will be meaningful in this particular district, but it's probably not going to be. It's going to be the general election. Now, one of the people who's running for that uh, seat is uh, Newt Bueller, who was a very popular Republican in the Oregon, I think he was a senator, but possibly House of Representatives, but then he ran for governor in 2018, and while he lost that gubernatorial election, he has a brand, he has name recognition, and because he was in the, uh, uh, the uh, state legislature, he has a network of connections with interest groups, and he knows who the endorsers are in various places, and he has uh, um, groups, he has a financial support network, uh, a fundraising network uh, already built up. So while he's running for an open seat, he has, he can, oh, he can see himself structurally uh, as more of an incumbent, not that, that he has the full-on incumbent advantage and that automatically people are going to vote for him. Like Earl Blumenauer, he, he's facing uh, a, 
a couple of, at least one challenger that I'm aware of for uh, the Democratic nomination for his uh, House seat. Um, but uh, his, because he's the actual incumbent and the long, long-serving incumbent, it's going to take a lot to, uns to unseat him. So, but Newt Bueller can, he can, he can act at this discovery phase more like uh, an incumbent and think more about what's my record, what's my service, what's my brand, what brand did I build up running for governor that can translate over? And I haven't studied this uh, uh, election, but... I, my best guess would be that his campaign team is saying, oh, we don't need to run against the way you ran in 2018 because you lost. I think that they're probably saying, you know, you lost to a pretty popular Democratic uh, governor in, uh, a, you know, in, a, in a blue state. You were actually perceived as this kind of Republican. And so that's what your brand is, and that's a beneficial brand to build on. Um, though, I'm just guessing. I don't really know. I haven't studied it. As I say, I think that one of the groups in this class might be using uh, New Bueller uh, for, uh, for their uh, case study, and I would be interested to see exactly how that's going down. So I hope that's true. Um, a challenger, let's just go with the classic challenger situation, though. We have, a, we have an incumbent. It's now a vulnerable seat because of the times. And uh, the, what an incumbent is, or an, excuse me, not an incumbent, a challenger represents change. There's a story built in to a challenger's campaign, and that story is change. There's, there's, there, there are different storylines available abstractly to a campaign, and that's partly what, a vo what finding a voice is. What could this campaign be about? What story is this campaign going to be about? Right? McDonald's marketing is about a story. It's about happy families. It's about satisfied kids. It's about comfort. Um, McDonald's or Coca-Cola's story is like you don't just drink a Coke and be like, ooh, that's delicious or caffeine or sugary. It's like you see yourself having good times. You see yourself among friends. It's a social thing. Um, what story is the campaign going to be about? When you're a challenger, the story that's going to win for you is a story of change. Now, there are a number of different stories of change, and of course, the, t the specific time and the specific group of people that you're running uh, to get their votes will have a lot of impact on what that story is. But a lot of it is that you can ask yourself, um, let's see, I have my note, what kind of change Donald Trump ran a change-oriented uh, story, uh, uh, cam uh, campaign story. Uh, and while he was running for an open seat, right, he was not running against the incumbent uh, Barack Obama, um, he understood that Hillary Clinton and, or he may, I don't know if he understood, but it was, he implicitly understood. I never know exactly what Trump does understand explicitly and what is just kind of actually part of his bizarre Rain Man-like uh, 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 campaign genius. But he understood that change was the storyline and his what kind of change his deep intuition was that a disruptive kind of change was what was called for now if that wasn't what the voters wanted he wasn't going to be able to change that story he wasn't going to sit down and say okay what kind of change do i think will resonate with the voters that was just the story that he brought. Donald Trump brought to that campaign that he was going to be a disruptor. And in fact, as far as campaign promises go, 
Trump kept that promise, right? He, he, his, if, if the underlying sort of implicit promise of his campaign was that I'm going to get in there and I'm going to disrupt. And then, of course, he, the, 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 the phrase drain the swamp is that's, that, that's a story. Like, that's not just a, that's not just a slogan. Like, a, a, log, a, a slogan. I'm with her. Uh, all of Hillary's campaign slogans were slogans in the sense of, like, they, they were tags or they were traits. Um, she wasn't a challenger. She was essentially running for an open seat with us, with uh, an incumbent perspective, and so she was choosing to highlight like her brand or her service. Whereas Trump was, he was the implicit challenger. He was saying, uh, "Drain the swamp, lock her up, right? Uh, you know, essentially get rid of the elites. All of the different versions, build the wall, like build the wall. That's a story. All of the things that Trump did, and this is the thing." As an entertainer, he's fundamentally a storyteller. A challenger is going to be telling a particular kind of story, and that story is going to be about change. And so going into this discovery phase, knowing I'm a challenger, what is a challenger's story? You can choose to tell a different story. You can choose to tell a story about your service. You can choose to tell a story about your, about your character. You can choose to tell a story about the issues that you represent. Um, but uh, that those are not going to be typically the most effective story for a challenger. Those are stories that are available to the incumbent, and then those are, those are potential stories that are available in an open seat. But when you're a challenger, you're saying to the voters, there's gonna be a change. And what you wanna do, voters are, they are the audience, right? You wanna put them in your story, and you wanna see them as being inside of a good story, right, a happy story. A story and, and, and a story of change is a uh, of course it's an inherently uncertain one right is it going to be a good change right and I think this is one of the things that's coming back sort of the blowback of Donald Trump's extreme version of the of, of, of the story is that uh, now like if like people voted for a disruptor because he presented them with a disruptor storyline and they felt themselves inside that disruptor storyline and it felt good yeah bring a wrecking ball to Washington get rid of the elites drain the swamp break it up like you know that that was, they got carried away by that story, and it's a story that makes you feel really good when you're inside of it, and then of course, you do expect, and this is one of the problems that incumbents do have, is that if you present something, and then people respond to it, and you don't deliver on that thing, that is problematic, right? Doesn't mean you're not gonna win re-election, doesn't mean Trump's not gonna win re-election, just because a lot of people are dissatisfied that his form of disruption was kinda not what they bargained for, but it does, when you move from being challenger to incumbent, that that's kind of the pivot that you have to make. You have to move away from that, so you can't represent change. Barack Obama didn't represent hope and change in his 2012 re-election, right? That would have been kind of uh, ridiculous. Um, I'm not sure Trump has any ability to tell a different campaign story. We'll see whether he does or not, whether he's actually able to say, I'm, you know, uh, I was able to govern, or I, or, I, or I followed through, give me chapter two of the, of the change story. But a challenger, is going to represent change. That's the story theme that they are handed by the structure of their of their run. Now, then they have to ask, what kind of change? And the uh, this is where it kind of depends on what the institutional structure of, of the race is. Who am I speaking to? Also, what are the times? What kind of change uh, do people want? But when you're a challenger, your process of discovery is going to be focused on change. And then it comes back to you as well. What kind of change? can I represent? What kind of change, what can I bring out of myself? Let's say that we've had a, uh, I'm, let's say I'm running for governor of a state, 
and uh, the governor of that state has been a uh, scandal-ridden, tumultuous, divisive figure, uh, and uh, is either term-limited out or is uh, retiring without running for re-election. Uh, whatever party I'm in relative to that uh, governor, the this is now an open seat, but I'm going to be challenger-like in the open seat, which is that, okay, I'm going to re I want to represent change because people don't like this anymore. People didn't like this divisive figure. Uh, people didn't like the scandals and the tumultuousness of it. If, if that's true of the environment, and I'm a person who, by their, their very life and their, the, the brand is available to me, that I am a steady hand, I'm a calm, effective leader, I'm a person who uh, doesn't, I'm not over drama, I'm not dramatic, right? No, no drama Obama, like that's, if that's kind of part of my uh, uh, brand, part of my reputation, or I have enough of that that I can bring it out. I'm representing a change of temperament. And a change of temperament is in fact a pretty powerful uh, type of storyline to be talking to voters about. Um, at the presidential level, and this is the one we're all most familiar with, it's the one I'm most familiar with uh, as well. At the presidential level, I think that there's a, that there's a character pendulum. Uh, and I think the character pendulum is that um, after eight years of a president, particularly eight years, maybe four, but eight years is definitely enough, the American people are, they take, they take for granted whatever the skills and abilities and temperament of that candidate are, and they want something different, right? So uh, we don't want Bill Clinton anymore, so we get... Uh, uh, George Bush, very different temperaments. We're, we're tired of George Bush, we want somebody who's more educated, who's more steady looking, more competent looking, we get Barack Obama. We're tired of this very no drama Obama, we get Trump. Uh, that character pendulum, which operates at the presidential level, is probably the strongest version of it. But as a challenger, or even as somebody running in an open seat, uh, against a sort of you know uh, the 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 previous uh, the previous office holder, and this is particularly true if it's an executive uh, position where people have been focused on that one person. Uh, the story of temperament change, or I represent a change of ideology. I represent a change of perspective. I represent a, I represent a change of of uh, of uh, issue. Right. Uh, the previous office holder. Uh, was somebody who was very focused on uh, economic development, on uh, jobs, on uh, even financial security for, for, for poor people, but I represent the progressive environmentalist agenda. That's what I represent. That's my, that's my story. I don't represent necessarily that that person had a tumultuous temperament and I have a calm temperament. Uh, I represent a different ideological uh, uh, thing. So what kind of change? Now, this brings me down to the open seat because the open seat is, and I've actually been speaking about some open seat races that, where the different contenders can, can act like incumbents or challengers, right? Like Newt Bueller can, can do some incumbent moves even though he's running for an open seat. Um, <clears throat> Hillary Clinton was doing some incumbent moves even though she was running for an open seat. But the open seat is the one where it really is the most open-ended, right? In terms of what can the story be? If you're an incumbent, or you can play, you can pretend to be the incumbent because you actually have already held elective office. Uh, brand and either I have to, I want to accentuate my brand, or I have to play against my type. That's going to be the voice of your campaign. And part of your discovery is which of these is better. Challenger, I represent change absolutely, but what kind of change? Well, the open seat, there are. 
essentially three different story thematics available to you. One story thematic for the incumbent, your brand. Whether you want to turn that into a yes, this is my brand, or no, I'm not like that story. Change is the only thematic. The changes for an open seat are, are is your story fundamentally about issues? Is your story fundamentally about character? Or is your story fundamentally about experience? Now, this is the most open-ended version, and this is where the discovery process is going to really uh, most strongly bleed into the strategizing process, which is you don't necessarily know. It's an open seat. Maybe you've never run for anything before, or you've run it. You've run for something and you've lost. You don't have any kind of uh, elected uh, office experience. You have government experience. You've maybe served on some boards, or you've or, or you've done uh, volunteer work, or you've been a lobbyist, or you work for an advocacy organization. Whatever it is that gives you the experience, or your candidate the experience that they think is beneficial uh, enough to run for uh, an office and realistically hope to win. Um, what do you take from who you are and all the things that are available to you, right? The issues are the thing that your candidate is going to want to lead with. This is why they get into politics. People get into politics not to go to rallies and uh, speak to people and to shake hands and kiss babies and to make phone calls to raise money. People don't, some, very few people get into politics because they like that public exposure aspect of it. Most don't, right? They don't get into politics because of the power. They don't get into politics because it's a good lifestyle, right? It's not either one of those things. Uh, and again, some people do. They get into it for those reasons, and that's a very, they either find that they get what they want or they find that it's disappointing, but that's a very small uh, group. Most people, and if you're running a campaign, if you're, if you're running uh, a campaign for a city council member in Gresham, and it's your first campaign, and it's their first time they're running, running for office, uh, or you're running a campaign for somebody who's running for mayor of Beaverton, um, the, they're going to want it to be about the issues, because that's why they're doing it. The reason why you cho choose to run for city council of Gresham is because you actually care. You see what's going on in your city. You, you, you see that there are certain problems and certain opportunities, and you have ideas and experience, and you think that, like, oh, I could, I could move in this, in this direction. This is why people run. Um, all, you know, that's why a challenger runs as well, but a challenger actually, like I say, their story is handed to them. You're, you're the story of change, and whether that story of change is about, uh, about the issues or about temperament, or about experience, kind of de depends on what your analysis is of what kind of change voters are ready for, what kind of change they're clamoring for, what kind of change do the times call for. Let's say you're an issues person, you're a policy wonk, and you're running against an incumbent who's now vulnerable. Um, but the type of change that the electorate is looking for is a temperament, a different kind of temperament. The reason why your incumbent is vulnerable is because people are sick of, of the drama, or people are sick of the scandals, or people are sick of the divisiveness. You might want, your candidate might want to run as an issues person. That's why they're jumping in. That's why they want that office. But you have to run them as a character type of change. Um, <clears throat> a lot of these things, which of these is right? Which of these resonates most with voters at this time and in your district? This is where you really do need some information, right? You're, because here, you're selecting among three available thematics. Here, 
changes your thematic. You just need to figure out how does that, how do we whittle that down. You're not going to have a non-change oriented campaign. Here, you're going to have your brand is going to be the main feature of your campaign. Um, issues, character, experience. This is also where your givens, what you have, like if you have a very flamboyant, excited, passionate, charismatic candidate, um, that's the character you have. And if uh, maybe they want to make the campaign about the issues, but you see, wow, this is, we, have a, we have a seriously charismatic person. Our story is going to be about this person, right? Not about their issues. And you'll let them talk about their issues. But it's not a matter of whether you do or don't talk about issues. Um, it's not a matter of whether you do or don't talk about your character or your experience. All three of these things are going to be discussed and uh, uh, are gonna get, get out there, and, and people, your opponent's gonna look at all of these things, uh, journalists and analysts are gonna look at all of these things. Uh, if, you, if you get into a candidate forum or a debate, you're gonna get asked about all of these different things. So there will be words and, and messages that get attached to each of these. That's not the, 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 the point, though, of this stage, and the reason why this stage is important is because when you get into the messaging, you wanna have a focus. You can't do everything, and you should not try to do everything in a campaign. It's just too much, right? Part of the reason why you, we want to do this discovery, finding the voice, is so that the messaging can be consistent, coherent, and effective, right? Everything that communications experts know about the psychology of the audience points to the fact that a cohesive and consistent message works better to get, and repeated gets people to take an idea and part of the, you know, in a campaign, the idea is I'm going to vote for you. They will embrace that idea. So you can't do all of these things at once. You shouldn't. It'll scatter your messaging and it'll be, it'll be less effective. What's going to be the focus, right? If I have a charismatic candidate and uh, they have a bunch of burning issues, okay, framing the way they talk about those issues through their charisma. Now, let's say that you actually have the opposite. Let's say that you have a very dry, technocratic, unpersonable type of candidate. You have somebody who is, a, you know, they're pr primarily accused of being robotic. Uh, and this is actually, this, 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 this is true for a lot of people who run uh, for office. Uh, it's very difficult for those people to get elected, so there aren't as many of them as there are people who have some version of charisma. But let's say that's what you've got, right? You've got you're running uh, a city council election in Gresham. The person who's your candidate uh, is passionate about their issues, even though they, their personality isn't very passionate inside. People can be very passionate inside without being able to translate that to the outside. Um, you're going to look at that and go, wow, we, just, we cannot make this campaign about this person's character because their character isn't compelling to voters. So then it's like, okay, well, the issues or experience, like, okay, what's their experience? Here's a person who is robotic, but they've, you know, has been a business leader, has, uh, you know, uh, grew up poor and successfully uh, started these businesses and, you know, has uh, been involved with the PTA of uh, his kids' schools, has been, you know, on the board of the Economic Development Council of Gresham. That's when you're gonna wanna go in this direction. And so your candidate will, in some ways, possibly give you one of these three categories where you have to go. But if, they ha if, there's, if there's a relatively uh, um, you know, decent level of, of all of these available to you, then this is where you, you have to say, okay, who are you? What is it 
And remember that you're telling a story still and always, right? What's the story? Finding the voice, and I should say, finding the story of the campaign. And the story is not about the candidate. The story is about the voter and the supporter. Because it's the voter and the supporter that you're, that you're wanting to put inside of that story. Right? McDonald's is not telling you a story about McDonald's. Right? They're not telling you that how this company went from just being, in, you know, the guy was making french fries in his basement to whatever. They're not telling you their story. McDonald's is a making available to you the story that you are the hero of, that you are the participant of, that the feelings and thoughts that you get uh, that, that come through that story come to you, right? So when this is the most tricky thing, the open seat, what story? But you have to remember that you're orienting your story towards the listener. It's their story. And you have to be telling it to them in a way that will allow them to inhabit that story in a positive way. Because what you're ultimately asking for, for from them is for them to give you their vote or give you their activist energy or give you their, give you their check. And that action is the culmination of a story that that person is participating in. So it's not your story, it's their story. All right, I think that I've said enough about uh, the basic sort of task of finding the voice. And uh, it's, you know, I, I probably should have just called this lecture finding the story of the campaign, though that is really the candidate side. Because a candidate-based election is really, and here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna erase that. It's not really, it is, it is appropriate. This is, what's the story? And remember, the story is the audience is participating in this story. You're telling them a story essentially about themselves. You're not telling it about yourself. Now, you're, you ha you're, you're telling it about yourself because you're the hero of the story. You're the narrator of the story. You're the protagonist of the story. But the, it's their story to inhabit. A ballot measure is really, fundamentally, an argument. And voters will respond to a ballot measure differently than they respond to a candidate. Because when you're asking, uh, when a person is asking you to give uh, them your vote, you're a set, that's a very personal thing that you're asking for, right? It's an approval of the person. Their name is on the, 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 the ballot. When, you're, when, you're, when a ballot measure is asking uh, for somebody's vote, they're, you, they're asking for the approval of the idea, not the person, right? And not to say that candidates aren't about ideas, but a ballot measure is nothing but an idea. A ballot measure doesn't have a temperament. A ballot measure doesn't have experience. It doesn't have a character. It is an issue, right? And while uh, the people who are running the campaign, their experience will shape how they frame that issue, a ballot measure is fundamentally an issue. Now, there's two structures to a ballot measure campaign, and one is the yes, and one is the no. And finding the voice of the campaign is going to really, in this case, it's very much more stark. And there's no partisan versus nonpartisan. The, the candidate elections have all the structural complexity, uh, and even a challenger can run as kind of an incumbent, or a somebody running for an open seat can, can position themselves more as a challenger. In a ballot measure, it's way, way more straightforward. And interestingly, uh, people who I know who, who've been in campaign for a while and work at the state level, and in, in a state like Oregon, which is only about half the states have ballot measures, where ballot measures are available, seasoned campaign people tend to ultimately eventually get pulled in the direction of ballot measures because they are simpler, because they don't involve the, all this complexity of, of structure, and also they don't involve people. 
a ballot measure won't get out there in front of a rally and say the wrong thing. A ballot measure won't get into a room with, with, a, with an editorial board of an important uh, endorsing newspaper and fail to make uh, the case uh, very well. Because the person who goes to that editorial meeting for the ballot measure campaign is the most well-prepared, best voice. You have everybody on the campaign staff to go sit down with the editorial board uh, for a ballot measure. Whereas for a campaign, you can't send the campaign manager. You can send proxies for certain things uh, on a campaign. Though, at, unless you're talking about statewide uh, or congressional or Senate, gubernatorial, you, you just can't, proxies are just not mostly available to campaigns because, it just, because there's not such a high level of attention that you can send your campaign manager to go talk to meet the press, right? Um, you, it's nothing but proxies on a ballot measure campaign. So the, the important thing here is, what's the argument, right? And this is a very different type of process. What could this campaign be about? Now, I won't say that there's not a story-like aspect to this argument, because what you're saying, particularly on the yes side, right, is you're saying, here's a future. Envision yourself in this future, it's a good, happy, positive future, right? So there's, there's a story as well, and in a way, a yes has some aspects of the challenger uh, structure, right? Because a yes is almost always asking you for a change. Now, this, th that's not 100% true because there are ballot measures, and we've, we have them relatively frequently here in, in Portland, that are asking to re-up things like bond measures or, or uh, um, property tax uh, levies, where essentially a yes is the incumbent and you're asking for continuity. Um, but it's way more common for there to be a yes that is a challenger. Okay. You're challenging the status quo. Now, one of the things that makes the no side so easy and wonderful is that you are uh, protecting the status quo. And there are all kinds of built-in features of human psychology that make it an easier thing to protect the status quo than to challenge the status quo. Um, so the no side automatically has, uh, unless, it, unless it's one of those rare ballot measures that's actually asking kind of, the no side has a built-in advantage. Um, the no side also has the luxury of essentially being reactive. If you're running a no campaign, you're not even going to get your campaign, or if, if you're, I would say, not even running a no campaign, if, you, if you're on the no side of something, you're not even going to get your campaign going and set up until the yes side is already well advanced, right? You don't have, there's a lot of things that no doesn't have to do organizationally that a yes does. You don't have to write a ballot measure. You don't have to go through uh, the Secretary of State's office to, to, to do all the, the, the paperwork. You don't have to get all of the signatures. You don't have to withstand the legal challenges. All you have to do is wait around until the ballot measure is actually either on the ballot or getting close to being on the ballot because the signatures are underway. And you can watch the way that the yes is messaging. And so your discovery process on the no side, there's, there's a lot of, there, you kind of almost get to skip this because you get to see what the other side is. You're being reactive. But you're having to then, you're discovering, okay, well, what could this campaign be about? What in their messaging? What in their stance, what in their issue, allows us to get a toehold of a no. And 
this is also, I would say, the campaign style where there's, you can have the most fragmentation. Because to get a no vote out of somebody, you just need one powerful enough argument to get them to no. And to get a yes, you have to have a powerful enough argument to overcome all of the potential counterarguments. Not just one, but all of the potential, the most powerful, not the niggling ones. Some people will respond to niggling things, but for the most part, you have to address, like if there's three possible reasons to, to, to say no to this, as a yes side, you have to be able to answer all three of those. Or at least you have to be able to uh, cast aside all but one and then answer that one very powerfully. Whereas on the no side, you can, you can find those holes and you can message to different people, different groups of people with a different type of no. Um, and you can be reactive by saying, oh, well, what is this campaign about? This campaign is about defeating this ballot measure that's gonna be problematic. Well, why is it problematic? Well, to you, it's problematic for this reason. To you, it's problematic for this reason. To you, it's problematic for this reason. You have that available to you. Now, there is still the danger in a no campaign of overly fragmenting your message and confusing the message and, make, and, and, and essentially diluting the power of your, uh, your counter argument. So that, that's not, not to say that you can just be as fragmented and as diverse as you possibly want. There still needs to be some level of coherence, cohesiveness, unity, and repetition that there, that there would be for any other particular, particular kind of campaign, but it's actually less problematic. So, that, that's probably enough to be said about the no side. Um, the yes side, you're challenging the status quo. So you already are asking people to change. Now, much like a challenger, there's an opportunity here as well as a problem, right? One of the reasons why you're even writing the ballot measure is because you see a problem in the world and uh, you think change would be beneficial. So you already have a storyline, an automatic storyline, which is here's a change. And you really don't even need to spend too much time thinking about what kind of change because the ballot measure is a single issue and it's, it, it is the kind of change, right? It is that marijuana is illegal in our state and what we're asking for is we're asking for uh, marijuana to be legal in our state. Like that's, that, that question answers itself. But there's a more subtle and challenging question that, the, the, that needs to be asked in the discovery phase and that is, what is the tone of voice, right? We know what the voice of the campaign for ballot measure is. It's you vote yes on this thing, right? So the question is, what's the tone of voice, right? One of the things about, say, a pro-legalization of marijuana ballot measure campaign is that the tone of voice really has a big impact. Because, you know, people who are, you know, like, oh, pot, it's, pot smoking is, you know, people should be able to do it, right? If your tone of voice is too excited, if it's too, essentially, I want to take drugs, that is, one, that's not going to speak to a lot of people, and two, it's going to be very easy for the no side to, to find those fears, right? That the, that the tone of voice of the yes campaign can potentially activate and they can just poke at those fears, right? Um, if, so if, if the pro-marijuana legalization is too much about like, you know, you get to do drugs. Now I know that would never be the slogan, but if the, if the emphasis, if the energy, if the, if, if the kind of, if the tone of voice of the uh, messaging is, moves in that direction of like, isn't it gonna be great that you get to have all, you have, get to have more sources of pleasure available to you and more sources of, of, of uh, recreation. Uh, that's gonna be like, th that, that's gonna speak to a certain group of people really powerfully. 
right? But it's also gonna be potentially problematic because the no side can, can activate a variety of different fears. Like, oh, I don't want my kids doing that, or what happens to society, or are people not gonna work as much? There's all kinds of things. So the reactive side is what you can do is you can actually just uh, activate fears and uncertainty. Not even classic fear-mongering, now I said I was gonna leave the no side alone, but I just I, I thought of this particular one, so I'm gonna I add it to it. But not necessarily classic fear monitoring, so much as this is why the status quo is always easier to preserve. People are uncertain. What does it mean? I will confess that when the uh, the marijuana legalization uh, initiative came up in Oregon, um, I voted yes for it, but I was uh, hesitant and I was reluctant. I had young children. At the time, I have teenage children now, I knew that they were gonna be teenagers. I was concerned, I'm like, I don't, how is this gonna play out? What's it gonna be like for my kids to grow up in a world where marijuana is legally available to them? And it won't be legally available to them until they're 21, but it's, you know, it, it's gonna be, it, it's gonna be, be in the culture. The, it, I didn't really know. Um, one of the benefits that the Oregon campaign had was that Washington and Colorado had already legalized several years earlier, and so they could message with, uh, by allaying some of that uncertainty, by just pointing out the fact that, you know, crime was down, revenue was up, there weren't a bunch of stories about kids, you know, eating their parents' uh, pop brownies. There was, so part of the tone of, of voice in, the, in that campaign was, it's gonna be okay. It's not gonna be disastrous, right? It's not gonna be, that we're not asking for this big change. We're not, we're not saying, we want more freedom and the freedom's gonna come at a cost of like more drug addicts and more kids are gonna be using and it's gonna be problematic. The tone of voice available to those, that wasn't available for Washington and Colorado, right? Because they, they didn't have any other examples to point to. But um, the extent to which fear and uncertainty are available to be triggered by a no side is something that the yes side has to absolutely take into account. The other thing, and this, is, this builds on what I talked about uh, last time, um, is the coalition building stage and how important the coalition building stage is to uh, a ballot measure campaign. Um, and a big part of it here is that the yes, the tone of voice is gonna be based on the coalition. And the tone of voice of a campaign is a successful campaign is going to be a tone that actually speaks to a variety of different uh, interest groups and advocacy groups that have different perspectives. The bigger coalition you can build, the more likely you are to win your yes. And you need to build a big coalition. And you need to start with a high level of, of uh, abstract support already. Um, one of the, uh, this is in one of the podcast episodes that I've assigned. I'm not guest lecture. I'm not interviewing him for a guest lecture. Uh, but John Horvick, he talks about the fact, he's a pollster, he talks about the fact that they, they regularly are hired to poll certain uh, ballot measure issues, one of which is um, the uh, Oregon's law against pumping your own gas. Uh, and routinely, about 50% of Oregonians say they want to pump their own gas, and 50% say they like the way it is. And he said that, that's, that, that no one will even start a ballot measure campaign to change that law at 50%. You need, it, you need 60 or 65% generic approval before you can even think of launching a successful campaign to get 50% plus one votes for a ballot measure because you're gonna have drop off. Once there's a specific ballot measure, once the no's get organized, some of that support that you saw in the initial polling is gonna be soft support and it's gonna be chipped away. 
so you want a high level of sort of generic approval for the issue, but you also then want, in order to solidify that, in order to possibly build that, uh, so that some of your loss from your soft support gets rebuilt back up by uh, um, advocacy group uh, uh, activism, is you want as big of a coalition as possible, right? You never want to play it safe. You never want to think, oh, well, you know, this is going to pass for sure, and we don't need to worry too much about it. Uh, there is a ballot measure that um, a couple of our, or actually a, a chunk of our um, guest lecturers so far, Rebecca Tweed is the campaign manager for the People Not Politicians Independent Dis Redistricting Commission ballot measure. Uh, Tara Musselman is an intern, and Kendallin Johnson is the deputy campaign manager. We've heard you've heard from all of them already. They're all working on this campaign. They built before they even got started. They built, uh, and this was primarily Rebecca's doing, a really broad-based coalition that includes unlikely allies like the business community and the Democratic Socialists and progressive uh, uh, liberals uh, and. Uh, labor groups, environmental groups, all kinds of groups. And one of the things that's, that sounds great, it sounds awesome, like of course, give us more coalition rather than less. One of the challenges of building a big coalition is making sure everybody's happy with the tone of voice and finding a tone that actually speaks to everybody. If you're a member of the business community and you're in, you're in favor of this, you're in favor of it for a different set of reasons than the Democratic Socialist Party is in favor of it for, and for a different set of reasons than the teachers' union is in favor of it for. So part of the challenge of a coalition is that people might all be pulling in the same direction, but they have a different emphasis on it. Now, with a candidate, because candidates are more multidimensional, right, and uh, you could actually hold together a coalition of endorsers more easily because each of them can see in the candidate what they want to see and they can support the thing they want to support. Um, whereas with a ballot measure, every group that's part of this coalition is going to want the tone of voice of the campaign, knowing that there's going to need to be a singular tone, that every representative of the campaign is going to have to speak, not necessarily in a lockstep monotone uh, um, you know, stump speech, but not too terribly far, I mean not monotone of course, but not too terribly far from more or less saying the same words. Message discipline is extraordinarily important always, but it's even, the, I would say the place that it's the most important is in the yes ballot measure. What is that message going to be? First of all, what's the tone of that message? What's the direction? How strong, how vociferous, how anti-authoritarian, how anti-status quo, how hopeful, how, uh, how much based on fears that if we don't change that it's going to get worse. Uh, um, what is going to be the emphasis? The discovery phase for a yes on the ballot measure is a different type of discovery phase. What it really is, is it's really consensus building. The ballot measure has essentially an intellectual argument for it, and everybody who is on the side of yes is going to intellectually accept that argument. That's why they're there. Or there are two or three different good, strong, uh, interdependent reasons to accept this particular ballot measure. And more or less everybody who's on, in the coalition, who's even capable of being pulled into the coalition, intellectually accepts that. It's more about the emotion and the tone and the perspective. Each member of the coalition is going to want the yes campaign to look the most like they would make it look if they were writing, if they were, if they were writing the campaign by themselves. 
And so, uh, but you don't want to let one part of the coalition win because that either other people will either drop out or they will become less enthusiastic and less energized, uh, and they will put less of their muscle into it. They won't tap their activist energy to help you get the signatures. They won't fully activate their their uh, financial uh, connections to help your fundraising efforts. So you want to have as high of a level of commitment as possible of all of your coalition partners. Um, and in order for them to do that, they have to feel like the, 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 the tone of the campaign, the voice, fits the voice of their organization. And it has to, because let's say that you're you know, on the board of directors of an advocacy group that represents the Latinx community, um, and you're part of the coalition supporting this, and then uh, you're, you want this to win, but you also need to go to your members and go to your supporters and not only activate their energy, but you also need them to not look at you like, how did you get involved with these people? How did, why, why did you sell the soul of our organization to this pro-business uh, um, thing? We, you know, we, we agree with the change, but like you sold the soul of our, of our, of our advocacy group to this pro-business orientation. So the, uh, you know, and then the pro-business group, they have to look at their supporters and they can't be like, they can't uh, have their supporters saying to them, how did you get involved with all these hippie, uh, progressive people and like this campaign? Like it's we're we're for it intellectually, but you just took us in the wrong direction. You 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 sullied our brand, right? So brands in a coalition, every partner is gonna have a brand that they want to preserve and enhance. Um, and this, I would say, this is this the stupendous art of this of all there's there's artistry in all these aspects storytelling is an art and so finding the kind of story you're supposed to be telling and then finding the way to tell that story so that the voter will be the hero of that story uh, or excuse me will, will inhabit that story even if you're the hero of it and they'll inhabit it in a happy way um, that that's artistic obviously the coalition building and consensus building is truly an art it's it's, it's a it's a people art more than it is a, 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 a sort of an art of storytelling uh, so the voice of the campaign is going to really depend on that process, right? And you, there's no way to predetermine what is going to build a consensus. There's, in all of politics, there's a lot of listening. And this is one of the things that uh, I hear from campaign professionals all the time, that they tell candidates, and that they tell themselves, and they tell other campaign workers, is that you have to really be listening to voters, to supporters, to uh, opponents. You have to really be listening, not Hearing and ready to address, not listening in the way of like, okay, I'm waiting for my turn to talk so that I can talk back at you, but listening and, and, and taking it all in. Super active listening for the yes side. There's no other way to find the voice of a campaign that is going to hold the coalition cohesively together on this same yes message. Um, so, okay, so that's finding the voice of the campaign. We haven't even talked about polls, focus groups, uh, how to write uh, various kinds of campaign materials. That's why I'm saving it all for next week because this discovery phase requires a perspective, knowing where it is your campaign's coming from, knowing which of these categories your campaign falls in, and not just knowing it, because obviously it's like, you, if you don't know that you're on the no side of a ballot measure, you're an idiot, but not just knowing that, but knowing what that means. What, what opportunities does it give you? What things does it whittle away? What things does it make not, not smart? You can't run as a challenger acting like an incumbent. You can, you can, you know, open seat, you can't run for an open seat on character when your candidate doesn't have the character that, that you need to emphasize. So already knowing kind of what your task is. But keeping in mind always, the voice of a campaign is, it's an argument for a ballot measure, but it's also a story. 
it's definitely a story for a candidate, even if it's about issues. It's still about like asking people to live in a world, a future world, imaginably, where those issues, the, the person who won the office has those issues. You're always asking people to put themselves into this particular story. All right, well, that's it for this week. I will see you guys next week. We will take this and we will, for lack of a better word, very political science word, we'll operationalize this stuff and take it to the next step and make it less soft and make it something that will then go out in, in the form of campaign communications. Until then, stay healthy, stay sane, stay, stay beautiful. Bye.